Howdy friends, welcome back for another episode. Now, I hate to start this episode off with a weather cliche, but wow, the weather in my neck of the woods has been absolutely amazing lately. Um, I live in Appalachia and we've had these really nice, cool springtime rains, followed by this beautiful, you know, 80 degree weather. It has just been absolutely amazing and I cannot wait for summer. Summer's my favorite time of the year, so I'm super super pumped for summer uh joining me in today's episode is my dog cash so if you hear tail wagging or uh dog noises in the background that is my partner in crime there so today's episode is the first episode that we're going to be looking at a distinct belief system to see if it gives us a new perspective on faith or god or you know the whole nine yards um i don't want to go into this exploration lightly for me personally um, it's important that i approach these topics with as much of an open mind as possible um, so i can glean from them as much as possible and i want to approach each of these belief systems that we discuss and we encounter with equal value and with as much of an open heart as i can Um, i believe that if i don't do that then i'm doing a, a big disservice to you all and to myself Oh, sorry. I need a swig of beer. Boy, sometimes a nice cold beer just sets you up for a perfect evening. So before we start today, I want to share with you all um, a parable that I'd recently heard, and it really resonates with my mission and the mission of this podcast. And you you may have heard this before, but all I ask is that you, you take the lesson to heart and you keep it center as we move through each episode, because it really um, just calls to light my mission, and my purpose for this podcast. So the parable goes like this. Uh, Once a long time ago, there was this really wise Zen master. And people from far and and near, they would come to him to seek his counsel and ask for his wisdom. And many would want want him to teach them uh, the ways of Zen and the way to enlightenment. And he never really turned anybody away. He was always open to teaching. So one day, uh, this important man from a nearby town shows up, and this guy, he's he's used to command and obedience, and you could tell by the tone of his voice that he's just kind of used to getting his way. And so he approaches the Zen master, and he says, I've come today to, you know, ask you to teach me about Zen, to open my mind to enlightenment, to teach me your mystical and magical ways. So after hearing this, the Zen master looks to the man he says you know what if we're going to uh, talk about this let's have a cup of tea first so the zen master he begins to brew tea and after it's finished brewing he starts pouring tea into the man's cup and the tea rises in the cup and it fills and fills and fills until finally it reaches the rim and it starts to begin to spill all over and the zen master just continues to pour And so soon tea is just all over the table and it's all over the man. And the man shouts, enough, man, you're you're spilling tea all over me. Can't you see that my cup is full? And so the Zen master stops pouring and he smiles at his guests. And he says, you, my friend, you are like this teacup. You're so full that nothing more can be added. Come back to me when the cup is empty. Come back to me with an empty mind. The purpose of this podcast is to empty your cup um, and to approach new ideas and beliefs 
with an empty mind. And, and that really has been my goal in life. And it's my goal for this podcast. Um, an empty mind, it doesn't have expectations. It doesn't have preconceived notions. And it's open to receiving new information. Even if you've heard all that information before, forget what you what you think you know about it. Forget your own perceptions. Look at it from a new perspective, like it's the first time that you've ever heard it and that you can't even compare it to anything else. So, with that being said, and our purpose clear, let's jump into this episode and um, explore this fantastic world of Gnosticism. We gon' figure it out It's time to figure it out gonna try anyway here we go gnosticism whoo dang it has been a couple of wild weeks with my friend gnosticism <laughs> um i should probably tell you all now that i am in no way authority and an authority on these topics that i cover i'm just this lowly spiritual nomad just like you and i i encourage you all to take my information at face value and I encourage you to go out there to do your own research and to figure out the truth for yourself. Going in to this episode, I had absolutely no background knowledge whatsoever regarding Gnosticism. And now that I can look back, I'm really glad that I didn't. Um, the way that I can compare it is like, have you ever watched like a movie or a TV show and it's based on a book? But then you try to read the book and it was just ruined by this uh, crappy movie or TV in comparison. Well, uh, that's probably what I felt like if I'd looked into Gnosticism before this point. Because uh, I've gone into it with my cup empty, just like we discussed at the beginning of the show. And I found that Gnosticism is full of these twists and turns and like unexpected ideas. And it made my whole research process really, really exciting. Um I know that this may sound super nerdy and I can really hear my fiance right now jokingly calling me a nerd, but you know what? I am what I am and research Gnosticism was very, very exciting. And I encourage you guys again to go out, read about it yourself because it is really just, I mean, all these topics that we're going to cover are just full of really interesting um, pieces of trivia, I guess. So maybe it'll help you at your bars trivia night, if anything. So a quick breakdown of today's episode. Uh, I'm going to keep you guys in suspense because first, we're not going to cover the belief system. We're not going to cover the tenets or the foundations of Gnosticism. First, we are going to set the stage a little bit. We're going to try to understand the context in which Gnosticism came about and understand the people who developed this religion. And once that stage is set and we have a really good understanding of how Gnosticism is going to arrive on the scene, we're going to go over the basics of the religion. And then, of course, we're going to decide if there's anything that we can take away from this belief system and apply it to our own personal philosophy. All right, let's jump into this. Let's set the scene and let's understand the context in which Gnosticism develops. So Gnosticism is kind of this weird fusion between Christianity, Judaism, and kind of smaller, other smaller religions that existed around the first century AD. But its primary parents and the, 
the two groups that we're going to be looking at who are really responsible for forming Gnosticism is Christianity and Judaism. So if we want to understand the context in which Gnosticism develops, we have to see where Christianity and Judaism was at that time. So the first parent of Gnosticism that we're going to look at tonight is Christianity. If we remember back to our last episode, um, when Christianity arrived on the scene, there was this huge explosion of new beliefs and philosophies. And many of those beliefs were just different interpretations of Christ's teachings. Um, and Gnosticism, in many ways, is just one of those different interpretations. In fact, later down the road, there becomes an official Gnostic Christian branch that officially fuses the two. Um, so on our timeline, let's start with the first century AD, right after the death of Christ. After Jesus's death, um, there were the leftover apostles who spread out all on their own and tried to teach Christ's message. But they all had their own ideas, they had their own personal experiences, and so their teachings and their message of what Christ's message was is different. Now, if we take the several different interpretations of Christ's teaching from his apostles and multiply that by how many people they taught, and then their interpretations, the people who learned from the apostles, their interpretations of the teachings, and now we have this huge pool of different opinions and applications and beliefs on Christianity, and there is no one cohesive idea. Because Jesus' life was pretty short, um, everybody took what he said and just tried to apply it in the best way that they knew how, right? What that leaves us with is only a loose idea of Christianity, because now Jesus' teachings have been diluted and mutated by thousands of people who all put their own spin on the message. Now, later in the 4th century, of course, we see an official orthodoxy of Christianity, and it starts to take form and shape that we know today. But within the chaos of Christianity in the first century, um, Gnosticism cars off its own little piece and begins to interpret the message of Jesus through the lens of a broken Jewish people. Which brings us to our next parent of Gnosticism, and that, of course, is Judaism. So, this explosion of Christianity and the inflammation the implementation of Christian elements, um, it's only half the story regarding um, the development of Gnosticism. To get the second half of the picture, we got to back up even further on our timeline and understand the people who formed Gnosticism just as they formed Christianity. Unfortunately, the Jewish half of Gnosticism is full of suffering and just overall shitty times. Um, you don't have to be a history buff to know that historically Jews have just been treated very, very poorly um, by many different groups through pretty much every era in history. And unfortunately, there are no surprises here. So to begin our journey down the Jewish path towards Gnosticism, let's back our timeline up way, way back to 1000 BC with King David. So in 1000 BC, this uh, Jewish King David, he takes over Jerusalem and he establishes the Jewish kingdom. Now, if you're familiar with Judaism or Christianity or even Islam, King David really has a very important part in that. And his son Solomon has an even greater part. So 
1000 BC, um, King David, he takes over Jerusalem. He establishes the Jewish kingdom. And this is very important for the Jews because Jerusalem and Judea, the, the surrounding state, um, is their holy land. Um, they believe that that is the land that God promised them. And it's the place where God is going to rebuild his kingdom at the end of time. They even believe that Jerusalem is the place where um, Adam and Eve sacrificed to God and where Abraham uh, attempted to sacrifice his son, Isaac. So when King David retakes Jerusalem in 1000 BC, it's a huge, huge deal. And later his son Solomon goes on to become king and he builds the Holy Temple or the Temple of Solomon. And that is the most sacred place for Jews. Now the Temple of Solomon plays a crucial part in our story of Gnosticism because um, it's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back that leads to the development and acceleration of Gnostic ideas. So you really got to understand that the temple is very, very sacred to Jews. And it, it especially is at this time. It is so sacred that they believed that God actually dwelt within that temple. And that was going to be the place where he would rebuild his kingdom, right? It is the sign of hope. It's the sign of, of a better and brighter tomorrow for Jew, Jews. And it's at the center of their belief system. Unfortunately... Um, even though things were great under King David and King Solomon and a few generations later, things didn't work out the way the Jews wanted them to. Um, over the years, Jerusalem and the surrounding state of Judea gets wrestled away from the Jews by several different groups of people. First, it's the Babylonians, then it's Alexander the Great, then there's this Jewish civil war, and then finally, uh, the Romans take over. And it's where the Romans take over that we're going to focus on because it's under Roman control that events transpire that lead us to the development of Gnosticism. Fast forward to 63 BC, and Rome is in control of Judea. It's in control of Jerusalem, of course, which is in Judea. But they don't really have direct control over the country. Instead of what they do is install their own king who rules Judea under Roman direction. And that king's name is Herod. Now, if you're familiar with um, the story of the birth of Christ, you know that King Herod was the guy who was going out killing babies because there was a prophecy that one of them was going to be the Messiah, and he was trying to kill Christ as an infant, and that's why Mary and Joseph had to run away to the manger. So we're really at the roots of Christianity here. So during the rule of King Herod, there is a lot of infighting between the Jews. Um, as I briefly mentioned earlier, there was the civil war among Jews that was both political and theological, and it really just kind of kept going even after the Romans took control. And around this time, the two groups that are leading this civil war, well, it's not really a civil war now, but this infighting among the Jews are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which may also sound familiar to you because um, in the Gospels, Jesus references the Pharisees and the Sadducees often in his teachings. Okay, so before we go any further, let's recap and let's make sure that we have set the scene and we understand um, what the regular average Jewish guy 
is feeling around this time. All right. So we got this group of people, the Jews, that's been treated terrible for the past pretty much thousand years. Um, they've been overthrown by different foreign invaders who just kind of stomped all over Judaism. Um, now there are these groups within Judaism that are infighting with each other over religion and politics. And probably at this time, if I was just your uh, average old Jewish guy in Jerusalem, I would be feeling pretty fed up with all this baloney. And I'd be uh, seriously thinking about changing the way I looked at the world. And all it would take for me is just another couple crazy events and I'd be ready to give up Judaism. And I'd be ready to find something else because the the destruction and the fighting and the disagreements and just everything is just getting to be a little bit ridiculous. Now, let's cue Christianity and see how these two parents work together to form Gnosticism. All right? So when Jesus arrives on the scene and he starts preaching his message, um, Jews in many ways are kind of ripe for the picking because they're fed up with these rabbis telling them what to do while they fight with each other over kind of everything under the sun. And again, our average Jewish guy, he's probably thinking, hey, you know, maybe this Jesus guy, he's kind of got the right idea, but maybe, you know, I'm still not convinced. For a lot of Jews... Um, that's still not convinced is going to change in 70 AD. So in 66 AD, this is after Jesus has died and the apostles are kind of spreading the message. The Jews are tired of this um, oppressive Roman control because they're still just a client state of Rome and they lead this revolution and this re rebellion. It lasts until 70 AD when the Roman army puts Jerusalem under siege they've taken over everything else and they're kind of ready to wipe out the last jewish resistance you can imagine how the siege ends of course uh, rome takes the city but one reason which is kind of funny that they're able to take the city is because the jews are still fighting with each other on the inside of the city there's actually a story that um, the pharisees and the sadducees are bickering amongst themselves by while Rome is encamped outside, and one of them um, sets fire to the city, hoping to undermine the other one, but really all he does is let the Romans in, um, who just eventually take over complete control. Now this is where things really fall apart for our average Jew, because Rome officially takes over Judea and Jerusalem, and they destroy the Temple of Solomon. And this as I said before, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. For our average Jewish guy, when the temple is destroyed, the place where God resides and the place that where heaven on earth is going to be built, and after the culmination of all the civil war and infighting between people of my own faith and being conquered by different people, it really makes me question my whole thought system. And now I'm ready to start something new. And that new belief system, of course, is Gnosticism. So when we look at elements of Gnosticism, we can really see the disgust, the angst, the oppression, the disappointment of your average Jewish fella in the first century. Um, Gnosticism, in many ways, it's been described as anti-Jewish. And the belief foundations that Gnosticism 
um, build upon. They try to be as radical and completely separate from Judaism as possible. Now that we've set the stage and we have an understanding about what Jews were feeling around the time of Christ and around the time that Gnosticism develops, let's jump into the tenets of the religion itself. But keep in mind, um, there are tons of variations of Gnosticism and they all differ in some way. Um, a lot of our research and what we know about Gnosticism wasn't discovered until the 40s when these guys just were dig plowing their fields and they found this clay pot full of all these different um, tablets and different scrolls and a lot of that information was just about Gnosticism. So we're still trying to, to learn about Gnosticism but it seems that there wasn't really a cohesive organization to the religion. So to break down Gnosticism, let's start with God. Okay, now empty your cup of everything you know or you've heard about God because Gnosticism takes a hard left turn down a path that you've never been before. God and Gnosticism goes by many names. Um, there's Monad, Bythos, the One, the Absolute, the Unknown Father, and so on and so on. Um, for this purpose, let's call him the Unknown Father because in Gnosticism, God is unknowable and beyond comprehension. Before we go any further, let's make this clear. The Unknown Father is not the Jewish God. Um, the Jewish God is in Gnostic theology, but his role is a lot more sinister and a little more twisted. But we'll talk about him more later. Let's stick with God. So the Unknown Father is the foundation of all things. He is everything. And while he's referenced as a he, don't let that fool you. Um, everything that occurs in the spiritual dimension where the Unknown Father resides is beyond human conception. So gender is just kind of irrelevant. But to reference him as a he um, helps to explain the beliefs and the origins of life later as we move through this. So in Gnostic tradition, um, the way that creation, you could say, was put into motion is that the unknown father allows these emanations to flow from him. And the best way to think of these emanations um, are as the unknown's father, children, and eventually grandchildren. And these emanations are called eons, and they're formed in perfect pairs male and female. Now again, sex really has nothing to do with what we're discussing. It's just easier to understand if we break it down that way. Now these eons combined with the unknown father make up pleroma, which means fullness. And for our purpose, pleroma is just kind of like heaven. It's the totality of the unknown father and his emanations in the spiritual dimension separate from the material world. But let's jump back to the eons. Um, the number and how many of these eons really vary from Gnostic sect. But what's agreed on is that um, after the Unknown Father created a few eon pairs, those pairs that he created created other eons, and then those pair of eons created another pair of eons. So what we have is this grand and great grand eons of the Unknown Father. So it's just like his kids... And his kids as kids, and his kids, kids, kids have kids, and it just goes on and on down the line. 
Now, it's important to note that while these eons are essentially made up of the unknown father because the, they emanate from him, um, they get more and more diluted and closer to the material world as they develop further from the unknown father. So as they get uh, separated from him, they become less like him. These eons, they keep developing until finally we arrive at the final eon, which is Sophia. Now, Sophia, of course, has a partner because all eons have a partner, but the partner is irrelevant, really, for our purposes. But what I want to remind you guys is to remember the name Sophia because we're going to encounter Sophia um, later in, in later episodes because Sophia has a large impact on faiths around the world. Um, she's recognized as the embodiment of wisdom. So she's important to various Jewish and Christian mystics and she's the goddess in New Age and paganism. So we're definitely going to see her again down the road. But what happens after Sophia is uh, emanated from her eon parents um, is kind of up to debate based on who you ask and what Gnostic sect they're from. Um, regardless, Sophia is responsible for the creation of the Demiurge. And this is where we meet our villain and where the Jewish god Yahweh kind of comes back into play. So again, the creation of this Demiurge, it's kind of subject to debate depending on um, which Gnostic you ask. Some say that Sophia was cast out of Pleroma, which is of course fullness, because she tried to reach the Unknown Father and to understand him. And when she was cast out, the chaos from her overwhelming sadness um, from being separated from the Unknown Father, that sadness and the chaos caused this uh, demiurge to be created. Now, other Gnostics would say that she tried to produce another eon without her partner. And what resulted was this abomination known as the demiurge. Regardless of, of the story, it's clear that Sophia is the mother of the Demiurge, and he was formed from some bad choice. So now we've touched on God, let's talk about his arch nemesis, which is the Demiurge. So when the Demiurge is created, um, he has no knowledge of the Unknown Father or the Eons. He is of the material. He is made from chaos. And he doesn't even know that his own uh, mother, you could say, exists, Sophia. Um, because he's outside of Pleroma, he's outside of fullness, and he's this abomination that can't comprehend the spiritual dimension. Now, naturally, because the Demiurge is alone, he believes himself to be God, and he starts making the material world and humans. But since the Demiurge is already flawed himself, the world he creates is chaotic and flawed as well. Um, the Demiurge, he creates humans in the material world to worship him because he's this fiercely jealous creator. Um, but of course, like most evil plans, there is a flaw. What the Demiurge did not realize is that when he created humans, Sophia came along and imbued within them a piece of the Unknown Father and Pleroma. And that piece is called the Divine Spark. Let's think of the divine spark as our soul. The divine spark, um, it wants to return to Pleroma, where it can be whole again and to escape the chaos and the suffering of the material world. 
But how does the divine spark return? Because just dying is not enough in Gnosticism. Gnostics believe that when a person dies, their divine spark is released and that tries to return to Pleroma. However, that person doesn't have uh, gnosis or knowledge of the divine spark within them while they're alive, then the Demiurge will capture the divine spark and hurl it back down to earth where it will be reborn again into a new body and undergo more suffering and chaos and be forced to serve him. The only way Gnostics believe to reach Pleroma and to be full again is to recognize that you're not part of this material world and that the Demiurge is only playing you and serving him through continual rebirth. If a, perkin, <laughs> if a person recognizes um, his or her divine spark and has studied on the ways of Gnosis enough, upon death, um, that divine spark, it'll be uncontainable by the Demiurge, and it'll fly right past him in all his barricades, and it'll join in with Pleroma again. Now, finding that gnosis and that knowledge could be a very um, difficult obstacle to overcome, right? But thankfully, the Unknown Father has a solution. Um, the Unknown Father, he realized what's happening with the Demiurge and, his, and the Demiurge's creations, and he notices that there are pieces of Pleroma being trapped in the material plane. So thankfully, the Unknown Father sends us teachers to show us the way of Gnosis. Uh, the most important of these teachers being, da -da -da -da, you guessed it, Jesus Christ. Uh, most Gnostic sects view Jesus as a messenger or an embodiment of the Unknown Father. And they believe that Jesus' lessons teach us how to find the divine spark within and that they help us to reject this material world and the laws and the rules of the Demiurge that only keep us down and try to keep hidden from us the divine spark within and to keep us from, from returning to the Unknown Father and Pleroma. Um, the lifestyle of a Gnostic then, it's not concerned with um, rules and laws of the material world. They don't think that faith or proper etiquette is going to deliver them to the great beyond. What they think that will bring them um, spiritual peace in the afterlife is knowledge and understanding of the divine spark, the unknown father, and who they really are within. Whew! Wow. Is that not... Okay, now... now... Let's back up here just a second. We've got through now the tenets of Gnosticism. We've set the stage. We know the context and how it developed. And can you not say that Gnosticism is kind of the most punk rock religion ever? I mean, can you imagine being a Jew in the first century and being just like, you know, uh, this Jewish thing, it really sucks. And so I'm just going to just turn this whole idea on its head and just say that the God we've been worshiping is really our villain, and he's trying to keep us enslaved. Like, that is just super, super radical. Whew, I love it. I think it's just so, so interesting. All right? Okay. So now that we've laid out um, the basic tenets of Gnosticism, 
And I encourage you guys to go do some more research because there really is a whole lot more to learn about Gnosticism. Um, it's difficult to cover every aspect of it in these podcasts. You really got to get out there and research for yourself. Now that we have a loose understanding of the context in which Gnosticism developed and the people who developed it um, and its basic tenets, I'm going to tell you some things I was able to take away from the religion. Um, now, if you guys were able to take away other things from Gnosticism, please shoot me an email. I'd love to hear y'all's uh, opinions on these different beliefs and philosophies. Um, tell me what your takeaways for Gnosticism was. And maybe if you're a Gnostic, I would love to talk to you and to hear and learn more about your um, religion and your belief systems. Okay, so to start with, let's talk about one thing I didn't like about Gnosticism. One thing I didn't like about Gnosticism is that it seems to rely a lot on other people, and particularly teachers. Um, now, I know that teachers are important, and it's great, and it's very useful to listen to teachers, and they hear different perspectives from people that you share the same faith with, because that helps you understand your own journey, um, and that it helps you grow and to learn more about yourself and to learn and see different perspectives. But I think it kind of sucks if you rely too much on teachers or other people, because if you never come in contact with another person um, that tells you about your divine spark, for example, how do you, how will you ever achieve gnosis? Um, you're just going to be constantly trapped in this continual cycle of torment and slavery. That's a pretty big bummer. Um, and ultimately, I think that higher levels of spiritual attainment should really should that should come from within you and through self-reflection. And, um, you know, I think that everybody really has their own tools to engage with God or, or whatever you want to call it. I think that's all within us already. And I don't like relying too much on teachers or knowledge. I think we have what's inside already. Um, to engage with God or a higher dimension. What I did like about Gnosticism, however, was its attitude to challenge. Um, challenging faith and challenging beliefs is very crucial, and it's crucial for two reasons. First off, challenging your beliefs, it kills off those ideas that you maybe haven't spent enough time focusing on and making sure that they fit with your own um moral or philosophical foundations i know for myself that that really is what led me down um a path to experience exploring other ideas and other belief systems is because i was being challenged on my faith and i was being challenged on my beliefs and i really didn't have um answers that i felt were personally true to meet those challenges but challenges are also good for a second reason, because it, it forces you to look at your beliefs and your morals and your own systems and to see if they are strong. And if they are strong enough to withhold and withstand those challenges, they grow stronger. And when you start to weed away the, um, the things, the weaker ideas and the weaker beliefs that get kind of paved over by those challenges, that leaves you with more room to expand upon what you do believe and what you do see as the truth. So I think challenges are super important and 
Gnosticism it, it is all about challenging. I mean, it took Judaism and just completely flipped the script and came up with this whole new idea. And it pulled in these other radical ideas like Christianity that were radical at the time. I mean, it was, it was very uh, a punk rock. Like I said, it was like a punk rock religion. Uh, as a side note, something else that I liked about Gnosticism is the Demiurge, because every time I read the word Demiurge, I could only think of the Demigorgon from Stranger Things, and it was really weird to think about us being enslaved by this interdimensional being from the Upside Down. All right, so before I wrap up today's episode, I really want to give a shout out to two really good friends of mine named Cody and Brandon. Um, we three, we've been kind of spiritual adventurers together from a a young age. And I'd recently told them that I was stepping away from our faith to kind of pursue different spiritual paths. And I'm so grateful to say that they reacted in the best way possible. Instead of like, you know, hounding me and berating me and telling me this is the worst possible decision. They encouraged me to find my own truth. And that meant so, so much to me. So before I sign off, I want to thank them for being there for me, for supporting me, for being great friends, and for understanding the importance of finding your own truth. And I want to encourage you all to do the same. You know, finding your own truth, maybe that truth lies within your current belief system. You know, I'm not telling that you I'm not telling you that you need to leave your religion, but I'm asking you to look within to find your own truth, to find something that you can really hang your hat on and that really gives your life purpose. And if your current belief system doesn't do that from you, you know, maybe you'll step away and you'll come back with a stronger foundation. Maybe you'll step away and you'll find something else that gives your life uh, a better and a more solid meaning. Um, Whatever the case may be, challenge yourself. Allow yourself to be a thinking, exploring philosophical human being and don't forget to empty your cup always approach life with an empty cup because you never know when something new um, could be learned or experienced that you otherwise wouldn't even seen or noticed had your cup been full i hope this podcast has found you all well as always remember to be hopeful stay positive and tell somebody that you love them until next time my friends see you later